Hello and welcome to Shay's Sports Stories. I'm your host, Shay, and on this show, I talk about the most interesting and important people and events in all of sports. And this will be a supplemental episode of our mini-series on the history of the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, the reason being is because it's more of a major event happening in the NBA um, related to the Supersonics rather than a specific, like, Supersonics event. Um, that event being the um, use of cocaine in the 80s in the NBA and how prevalent that became. Um, so drug use in the NBA had started to grow over the 70s and then reached its height in the 80s. A Washington Post article from 1980 claims that at the time, between 40 and 75% of NBA players were active cocaine users. Frank Layden, general manager of the Utah Jazz, said in 1980, There is not a team in the league you can confidently say does not have a drug problem. Layden, unfortunately, would know better than most how serious this problem was, as the first casualty of the cocaine era was on the Jazz. Terry Furlow, a Utah Jazz guard coming off the best season of his career, had died in a car crash with Valium and cocaine in his bloodstream a few months before Layden gave that quote. Unfortunately, Terry Furlow's death would not end the usage of cocaine in the NBA, and while at that point Terry Furlow was the lone death due to cocaine usage, the drug had caused multiple careers to fall apart. The Sonics were no stranger to superstars struggling with cocaine abuse. David Thompson, the player who inspired this episode, was a superstar in the ABA and the NBA with the Denver Nuggets. He is tied for fourth all-time in points scored in a single game with a 73-point performance. After suffering a foot injury in 1980, David Thompson began to have substance abuse problems, and obviously, you know, this created personal issues for him, which are important to recognize. But just to look exclusively at the basketball for a moment, in the 1980 and 81 season, Thompson averaged 25.5 points per game. The year after, Thompson averaged 14.9 points per game. He then left Denver for Seattle, had an incredibly erratic debut, and eventually his substance abuse challenges led to him going to rehab. Seattle had another superstar who dealt with cocaine addiction, Spencer Haywood, who similarly to Thompson suffered a severe decline once he started using the drug. Haywood has since been very open about his struggles and tried to discourage others from following the same path likening cocaine to the devil. Much like Terry Furlow's death, David Thompson and Spencer Haywood's very public struggles still weren't enough to discourage the usage of cocaine in the NBA. That wouldn't happen until the death of Len Bias. Bias was an elite college basketball player, becoming a two-time ACC Player of the Year and a two-time All-American. Bias was an elite athlete, and the Celtics scout Ed Badger compared him to Michael Jordan which certainly played a part in Bias being drafted second overall by those same Celtics in the 1986 draft. Bias went to Boston and signed a five-year endorsement deal with Reebok. He then returned to his dorm in Maryland. At his dorm, he used cocaine for the first time and either overdosed or had a bad reaction to the drug and died due to cardiac arrhythmia. This finally sparked national attention to cocaine usage in the NBA and encouraged many players to avoid the drug as well as creating the Len Bias Law as part of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act to increase punishments for dealing cocaine. Len Bias' death obviously did not end cocaine usage in the NBA. It continued to plague the league for years to come. But it was the moment that caused it to begin to decline, particularly among young players coming into the league. And with that, the sports section of our show comes to an end. Uh, As you may know, 
Shea Sports Stories now has two halves, one on sports, one on something else, usually somewhat related to the sports topic. Um, in our next half, we'll be discussing the history of one of the first grunge bands in Seattle, Mother Love Bone. Welcome to the non-sports half of Shea Sports Stories. Uh, so on this half, we're going to be discussing the history of Mother Love Bone. Uh, Mother Love Bone was formed in 1987 in Seattle, featuring Jeff Ament, Greg Gilmore, Bruce Fairweather, and Steve, Steve Goddard, and frontman Andrew Wood. By 1988, they were playing local shows and recording music, quickly establishing themselves as one of the most promising bands in Seattle. While not the first, they were one of the early bands to enter the grunge scene, and they were also pioneers of alternative metal. The band's early success helped them sign to Polygram in November 1988. The band released their first EP, Shine, a few months later in March 1989. Shine was many of the, was one of many things released by early grunge bands, which contributed to Seattle getting more national attention in the music world. To really see how early and important this was, I'll say that uh, two months later, after Shine was released, Nirvana would release their debut album, Bleach. Uh, 1989, Mother Love Bone was working on their debut album, Apple. Unfortunately... The immensely talented frontman, Andrew Wood, had had long had struggles with drugs. Days before Apple was slated to be released, Andrew Wood died due to a heroin overdose. Um, it was led to Apple being delayed for obvious reasons. When it was eventually released, it received critical acclaim, but it had limited commercial success. Um, many of the people who did listen to the album noted that it had succeeded where many other albums had failed in putting a spin on rock music for the new generation. Um, so to kind of put that in my own words, be a little more direct about it. It was one of the first albums to really figure out what grunge should be, what the sound should be. And it was for one of the first to really succeed. Um, unfortunately, Mother Love Bones wasn't just a uh, template for how grunge music would sound. It, um, had another unfortunate premonition with Andrew Wood's death, um, with many other grunge frontmen dying in the future due to uh, drug overdoses and suicide. Um, the aftermath of Mother Love Bone both reflects and counters this. Uh, Chris Cornell formed an Andrew Wood tribute band with Mother Love Bone and Eddie Vedder called Temple of the Dog. Cornell, a very successful grunge frontman, died by hanging in 2017. But, you know, it's been quite a dark episode so far. I think it is worth noting that, in a way, Mother Love Bone's legacy has been morphed into the opposite of these tragic deaths, as Gossard and Ament joined Eddie Vedder in forming Pearl Jam after working together on Temple of the Dog. While many may overstate the connection between Mother Love Bone and Pearl Jam, it's still, you know, obviously a very strong one. Um, and I think it's worth noting that Pearl Jam is notably considered one of the a little different from other grunge bands a little less a little more positive in a lot of ways a little less depressive um and has you know kind of in a way while still sharing many of the themes veered in a different direction from a lot of these bands and they are still making music they're still succeeding you know despite a lot of the struggles that grunge music has had they've managed to uh keep going and avoid a lot of the uh, really tragic pitfalls that a lot of their fellow uh, musicians in that scene have faced. Um, 
And that is all for this week. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more great content on 88.9 The Bridge.